So we'll be in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 this morning. So if you've got one of your Bibles, you can grab it. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one on the chairs next to you. Uh, and if you grab one of those Bibles, it's going to be on page 775. Page 775. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers, the verse numbers are the smaller ones. So we'll be in chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take the one on the chair with you. That's our gift to you. So we'll be in John 20, verses 1 through 10. This is after the resurrection. Now um, some of Jesus' closest friends and disciples come and they discover an empty tomb. And this story here in this chapter is the foundation of the entire Christian faith. It is the linchpin that if you pull this out, everything else crumbles apart. Paul writes later in the New Testament, he says that if Jesus, in fact, didn't rise from the dead, we of all men are to be pitied. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everything else that we believe doesn't matter. It's not true. This is the great event, the foundation in which the rest of the Bible is written upon. It authenticates the sacrifice of Christ, and it gives us hope and gives a message to the early church that blazed throughout uh, the first century. And so one of the things that I hear often as a Christian is I hear the, the claim that at the core, every religion is just the same. That, that if you strip away kind of the people and the, the cultural differences and you get down to kind of the heart of each religion, they're all the same. Whether it be uh, Muslim or Buddhism or Christianity or Mormonism, whatever it may be, at the heart, uh, they're all the same. And one of the things that there's a number of ways that I usually will try to, to help people see well, that's actually not true. One of the ways that I'll try to do that is push people to look at the lives of the leaders who started those different faiths. So look at Muhammad, look at Joseph Smith, look at the Buddha, look at these men who began these movements, look at the Dalai Lama or the Swami, look at these men who led these movements, and then look at Jesus. And as we hold them up next to each other, we find that there is a striking difference between the ones who started these religions. The difference is, is you can go visit their tombs today, every single one of them. But when you go to Jesus's, you'll find it won't have a body in it. That Jesus is the one man who ever died who is no longer dead. And that gives a certain amount of credence to his claims that rise above the others. And as we look and we see that there is something different about Jesus because of this story, because of the empty tomb, I think I can say with confidence that if these next 10 verses weren't in the Bible, then we wouldn't be here this morning. Jesus could have lived his whole life and taught these incredible great teachings, great morality, ways to love one another, maybe even done miracles. He may have been a first century David Blaine, who knows? But if the next 10 verses don't happen, if his body is still in the tomb in John 20, then listen, we're probably at home sleeping right now and not in an elementary school cafeteria in Mineola. But there is something that happened in this resurrection that sparked a movement in the first century that people said that there is something different about this Jesus. And there is something different about this faith, about this way, Christianity. And so as we come, we, we come before then this huge moment in the Christian faith, and we're faced, I want us to ask two questions this morning. And the two questions about this resurrection I want us to ask are just, did it happen, and does it matter? Did it happen, and does it matter? I think those are the two questions that we need to really wrestle with 
today. Because the thing that I always will try to, as I'm having conversations with friends of mine who aren't Christians, there are lots of questions or difficulties they have with the faith. And there are a lot of hard questions about Christianity. I'll own that. But the thing that I'll always try to say is, okay, put those, don't just ignore them, but look at this first. Look at the resurrection. Because if the resurrection is true, that then begins to color some of these other difficulties of the faith. If I go, you know what, I'm not quite sure if I like what Jesus said there. If we just focus in on that, it can sometimes be hard to wrestle with some of his teachings. But if we start with, okay, you know what, this guy isn't dead anymore. Maybe I should just listen to him. It begins to color in a little bit the other problems that we may have. And so the question I'll always try to get people to is look at the resurrection, wrestle with it, ask yourself, did it happen? And then does it matter? So first, did it happen in this story as we read? Let's read now verses 1 through 10 and hear this account from John. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran And went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So in this account, John is the one here, the other disciple in this story, the one who ran with Peter. He is writing this story, giving his account. And so the question I want us to ask first is, did this happen? Did it happen? And there are a number of reasons and arguments you can look at for why the resurrection historically occurred. But I want to look at three from this account in particular to ask the question, did it in fact happen? The first thing I want us to look at is the surprising witness we see here in John in verses 1 through 2. Look in verses 1 through 2. In the first day of the week, who is the first person John writes that reaches the tomb? It was Mary Magdalene. She came early. It was still dark. Now, one of the things, before we kind of get into why this is so surprising, one of the things that sets Christianity apart is what it is that the, the New Testament is built upon. It's built upon the accounts of eyewitnesses who saw what happened. And these eyewitnesses wrote during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. So John saw all of this happen. He was an eyewitness to it. And he's writing about Mary Magdalene and Peter, who were other eyewitnesses, who as he's writing this story and it's getting passed around, they're still alive to be able to read this. And they're like, yeah, uh, yeah, that happened. I was, I was there first. And the foundation of Christianity is built not on the written autobiography of its founder or its holy uh, leader that had this private revelation from God that then goes and tells everyone, but Christianity is built upon the account of multiple eyewitnesses. And that's starkingly, I don't know if that's a word, we're going to say it is, strikingly, let's make a real word happen there. It's strikingly different from other faiths. I want to look at this slide uh, real quick. 
Um, here's how other religions start is. You either have a private dream about God or you have a private angelic encounter about God, say with Mormonism or with Islam or a private idea about God, uh, say with Scientology where there's this kind of revelation that this one person has. And that one person then goes and tells everyone what he saw. This is what you see across the board. One man with this private encounter who goes and tells everyone. But Christianity is strikingly different. As we see Christianity started, after a public ministry, Christ was killed publicly outside Jerusalem. Christ rose from a public tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, publicly. Christ then publicly showed himself to the public, and it was the public that told everyone what they saw. Friends, Christianity was the most falsifiable religion the first century had ever seen. It's the most falsifiable religion that we have ever seen. Because all it took was one eyewitness to come forward and go, wait, what they're saying over there isn't true. That's not what happened. But all of these eyewitnesses, and what we see later in, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, hundreds of them are coming forward and saying, this is what I encountered. And each of them are corroborating each other. And this was the foundation of the Christian faith. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And that's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And then, listen to this, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. So after Jesus was raised, he stayed 40 days on the earth and was having conversations with people, having meals with people, having these encounters with individuals. As Paul says, over 500 brothers, that doesn't include the women or the children he encounters. We're talking probably around 1,000 people that encountered and have conversations with this risen Jesus. And Paul says, hey, church in Corinth, most of those people are still alive. Go talk to them. Here is the message that we've been delivered. And this witness is what builds up the uh, testimony of the church. But of all of the witnesses that there are in the story of the Gospel of John, who is the first to the empty tomb according to this author? It's Mary Magdalene. The witness, this witness whose claim would become the foundation of the entire structure of Christianity. She's the one that first finds the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene, she was the only woman that wasn't a part of Jesus' family that was there at the cross. She was the first to the empty tomb, and she was the first to encounter the risen Jesus. Now, why do I point that out? Why is that a big deal? Well, it's, it's hard for us today because in first century um, uh, Middle Eastern culture, I actually write about this some in the magazine if you'd like to dig a little bit more into it. But to understand the way that women were viewed and treated in the first century helps color how surprising this is that John would include this. Because in the first century in the Middle East, a woman's testimony wasn't even admissible in the court of law. It wasn't credible. They were seen as less than. They weren't reliable. So in the, the court systems, their testimony and their witness wasn't valid. And John goes, you know what? Here is this entire faith that we see God coming to stand in our place, has died as a sacrifice for our sin, is now risen from the grave, and the testimony, the witness of the very first person is going to be a woman. And not just a woman, a woman of ill repute, 
if you will. Mary Magdalene had a colorful past, and not in like a Winter Garden way, right? Winter Garden's slogan, a charming southern town with a juicy past, talking about how it's like oranges and juicy, yeah, whatever. That's not Mary Magdalene's juicy past. Mary Magdalene had an actual juicy past, and she experienced radically the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And it was her first witness, her testimony, that the church was built on. So listen, some people will say, the resurrection, the resurrection causes a lot of problems. The empty tomb causes a lot of problems for the secular mind, historically, not biblically, historically. And so there are lots of ways to try to explain it away. One of the ways is that the disciples just made this up. John just kind of fictionalized this story along the way. Well, listen, if you're making up a religion in the first century, the person that you're not going to found it on is the witness of Mary Magdalene, the witness of a woman. You're going to use some superstar, whether it be John or one of the other disciples or Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the LeBron James of the first century. He was on the Sanhedrin and a part of the Pharisees. He was a Jewish heavyweight. He was the man, and he's already been kind of seen in this thread throughout the gospel in John 3, and then just in John 19, he helped Joseph bury Jesus. He's the perfect candidate to bring forward as the first witness, but instead, we get Mary Magdalene. And why? Unless that's what actually happened. And John says, I can't tell another story because this is the truth. And we see this surprising witness as this first evidence that this is the actual story that happened. Second, we see some surprising laundry in verses 3 through 8. The surprising laundry. We see then as Mary Magdalene finds this empty tomb, she runs back to Simon, uh, Peter, and John and says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. So she isn't convinced yet of what's happened. She thinks somebody stole the body. So then you see Peter and John run towards the tomb. Peter went out with the other disciple. They're both running together. And I love this in verse 4. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This is John writing it. He's the other disciple. It's like, John, we all know who the other disciple is. And some people will try to spiritualize this. And maybe, maybe that's what it means, that maybe John loved Jesus more. And so that's why he got there first. Maybe historically it's showing us that, that John was just younger than Peter. And so he outran them. Or I think maybe John's personality, he was just like, I just want everybody to know that I beat him. I want everybody to just know. When we ran, I got there first. And, and he writes, so he get, they both get there, but John gets there first. And then in verse 5, stooping to look in, John sees the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, and he followed him and went into the tomb. So Peter's the first to go into the tomb. And he sees these linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which was separate. It was on Jesus' head. It was not lying with the linen cloth, but it was folded up in a place by itself, neatly laid this laundry, the original Easter clothes, grave clothes, were here in this tomb, neatly laid and folded. Now, again, why is this an evidence of something that happened? Because another story that people say is there were maybe grave robbers. They were common in the first century, so much so that there was a death penalty warranted and issued by uh, Rome if anyone were to rob graves. They received the death penalty. It was common. And people may say, well, maybe Jesus' body was just stolen. Well, listen, I don't know if you ever had your car broken into, but the thief doesn't come in and take what he wants and then go, oh man, they left some trash on the ground. I'm gonna just clean that up for them. When you come and you see a car that's broken into, it is destroyed. 
There's glass everywhere. They don't care what it looks like. And if this was, in fact, a grave robbery, the grave would have been a mess. They wouldn't have taken the time to take the linen cloths off of Jesus and then folded them neatly so that they could then leave and impress somebody or maybe leave behind this fictitious story that would spark a new religion that isn't in the back of a grave robber's minds. But we see that, no, in fact, there has to be something else that happened here. So maybe the disciples took the body and they have this elaborate scheme then to place these cloths like this. Well, maybe, but then you still have to deal with all of the thousands of eyewitness accounts that encountered the risen Jesus afterwards. Because this one thing, listen, I'm a part-time magician. I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there. An amateur part-time magician. And here's the hard thing about magic. It's easy to make something disappear. It's really hard to make it reappear again. That's the prestige. That's the, the final part at the end that really impresses people. Anybody can make a bird disappear or a car disappear and they go, oh, that's kind of neat. But when you make it appear then in their ear and a bird flies out from like inside their coat, that's where magic happens. And so here, it wasn't just that the body was gone, but we have this story of Jesus who came back and who encountered not just one, not just 12, but a thousand people, eyewitnesses, most of whom were still alive when Paul wrote the letter to Corinth. Go and talk to them you still have to deal with the body that was risen again. Well, then people will go, well, maybe, you know what? Maybe then all those eyewitnesses were in on it. Maybe they all got together and said, let's, let's put together this story, and to do it, we have to have the same story. We have to get the story straight, right? You and your brother or sister ever gotten in trouble? You go to your parents, and you make sure you've got your story straight because you know you're going to be interrogated separately. And you know that whenever you're interrogated, your stories have to match up. And so maybe that's what happened here with these disciples. As they go, they had so much faith in this Jesus that they wanted to be able to have this story to propagate and start this new faith. And maybe they were just all in on it. Maybe they all just claimed to see the risen Jesus. But listen, then you have the problem of every single one of the disciples dying a horrendous and graphic martyr's death. Each of them. And none of them recanted. John didn't. John was just, he got it easy by being uh, banished onto an island for the rest of his life. But the rest of them, Peter, crucified upside down. And you tell me anyone that would do something like that, go to his grave, enduring that kind of pain, knowing that something's a lie. And people will tell me, well, Caleb, people die all the time for something that's not true. I go, yes, but they believe it to be true. That's the difference. Here in this claim, people are saying the disciples didn't in fact see Jesus and they went forward to their deaths. And there isn't, not just for one of them, but for all 11 to go to their deaths saying, this is what we saw. Listen, they're not gonna, what did they get from making up this story? A life of suffering and persecution and then being crucified upside down? Awesome, glad you kept that lie your entire life. That's dumb, right? It's not like they got famous. It's not like they're buying Mach 1 jets. You read the New Testament, it's filled with persecution and suffering. That was the first century Christian experience. And the only reason why they pushed through all of it is because they met somebody that used to be dead. And he's not dead anymore. And they went to their graves knowing the truth because they knew that the grave didn't have the final word in their life. Because they found the tomb to be empty. And they knew that one day theirs would be as well. 
And so there's this surprising laundry, these historical facts that John places in here, whether it be these details or specific names and locations. We get Joseph of Arimathea in the last chapter. That's a dude. That's a guy that's written about here. We get a specific place, this garden. We get historical figures like Nicodemus that people would have known in the first century. They would have known his family. He came from a a well-to-do family, and he experienced great exposure. So these were historical documents that had specific historical details in them, like folded up laundry. But that's not the only thing we see. There's also a surprising prophecy. Surprising prophecy then in verses 9 through 10. That after all of this, John walks in. The other disciple, we see in verse 8, he reached the tomb first. He went in. It said he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And so here John is saying he went in and he believed based on what he saw, but he didn't quite understand that based on the scripture, and again, what's the scripture that he's talking about there? The New Testament hadn't been written yet. He's talking about the Old Testament. Based on the Old Testament, he didn't understand it, that Jesus must rise from the dead. That there is this prophecy throughout the Old Testament that this Holy One would come and would not see corruption. He would not die. He would rise again. And this was the specific prophecy written about hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked around. Right? The Bible pointed to this moment. We saw it in what Katie read earlier in the most common uh, one quote in Psalm 1610. It says that you will not let your Holy One see corruption. This is the verse that Peter quotes in Acts 2 to talk about the resurrection in the very first gospel sermon in Jerusalem at Pentecost. It's also the verse that Paul quotes in Acts 13 when he's talking to a Jewish community in Antioch. They're saying, look, the Bible has been pointing forward to this resurrection. This isn't new. We see illusions of it in Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, Hosea 6, 1 and 2, and Psalm 22, 22 through 24. All throughout the Old Testament, there are these things pointing forward that this Holy One will not stay dead. The entire Bible is pointing to this reality, to the empty tomb. But not just the Bible, but Jesus himself predicted it throughout his public ministry, that he would die and that three days later he would rise again. Uh, Earlier, just in this same book, in John 10, 17 through 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So Jesus is teaching very publicly I'm going to lay down my life. This isn't some plan foiled. This isn't some betrayer that I didn't see coming. I'm laying it down and offering it as a sacrifice, and I will take it up again. That's the authority that I have. Now, the Jewish officials knew this. They knew that Jesus had been teaching this. This was public knowledge. That's why in Matthew's account, in Matthew 27, 62 through 66, the only action that we see on the Saturday of this week So you have the Good Friday, Easter Sunday. The only action we see of Saturday in any of the Gospels is the Jewish officials coming to Pilate and going, hey, he said he's going to rise again. Make sure the tomb is sealed. And Pilate's like, listen, you've got soldiers. Go and seal it yourself. Go and guard it. So they seal it. They put guards there. It's the only thing that we see on Saturday. And I want to spend more time there because we see the silence of God on that Saturday. And often we see the silence of God in our lives. But friends, just, just to take this point, just as an aside, we see on that Saturday, on that weekend, 
that the silence of God does not equal the absence of God in your life. God was there and he was working. He was waiting for the brightest day this world had ever seen. But he was silent. So do not mistake the silence of God for the absence of God. But Jesus was predicting this very resurrection. The Jewish officials knew it. They wanted to make sure, let's make sure no one comes and steals his body and tries to push forward this counterfeit, this liar, this phony. Jesus taught it publicly. And so listen, it's one thing to kind of hit the jackpot and get lucky and to be the one guy in the, uh, the entirety of human history that died and that rose from the dead and never died again. That's pretty fortunate. It's an entirely different thing to then say that you were going to be that guy throughout your entire life. Jesus didn't just happen upon the resurrection. He was walking towards it. He knew it was coming. And there was something strikingly different about that prophecy, both from Jesus and throughout the Bible. And so what we see in John is this eyewitness account that was written during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It's a reliable historical document that records supernatural events like this resurrection that fulfill specific prophecies throughout the Old Testament and throughout the public ministry of Jesus. You put all of those pieces together and it's hard to deny that there is something divine about what happened in John 20 verses 1 through 10. And so it's why I choose to believe that this resurrection did happen, that the tomb was in fact empty, that there is reason that we can actually use our minds to engage with this empty tomb. And so did it happen? That's the question that you must answer. It's the question that every single person has to go before and answer, did it happen? But we can't stop there. We can't just say yes and then call it a day. Because listen, you can believe with absolute certainty that the resurrection happened and still not be a Christian. Let me put it this way. If you were able to walk up and ask a demon any question you wanted to, let's say you go up to the demon and you say, hey, did the resurrection happen? Do you know what they're going to say? Of course it did. Demons are superb theologians. They understand exactly who God is and what he did. But knowledge of true things will not save you. Right doctrine will not save you. You have to move a step further into trusting and embracing the truth that you claim to believe. It has to move from your head into your heart. That may be the most distant 12 inches that our lives will ever face. And we have to then answer the question, does it matter? Does it matter in your life? Does it matter? So the two things I want us to kind of wrestle with then. If this is true, okay, well, does it matter? Well, if this is true, listen, we are dealing with the true God. If this is true, we're dealing with the true God. And secondly, if this is true, then we are dealing with true hope. We are dealing with true hope. So first, does it matter? If this is in fact true, this resurrection, this empty tomb, then we are dealing with the true God. We're not just dealing with another dude, another guy. We're dealing with a man who conquered death who fulfilled the prophecies that he claimed throughout his entire life. And along with those prophecies, he claimed to himself be divine. He claimed to be God. And so whenever we come to Jesus, we can't just come before him and go, well, he was a good teacher. He was a good ethicist. He taught good morals. We have three options to be able to label Jesus. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. 
Those are our only three options. He cannot be a good teacher. Did you hear what he said just a second ago? I have the authority to take up my life again because I am from the Father. He's talking about God. So just imagine somebody in your life. Even imagine somebody that, imagine the best person that you know. All right, we're all gonna say it out loud on the count of three. (laughs) Kidding, no. But imagine in your minds, the best person that you know, okay? So let's just, we'll, we'll put forward the best person in your mind. Now imagine that they walk up to you and they go, hey, listen, I've been wanting to tell you something. I hadn't known how to bring it up, but God is my father and I can die and I'm going to be raised again. How's that conversation going to go? Right, the only thing you're going to figure out is how quickly do I call the psychiatric ward? Because that's not normal. Okay, if it is normal, come talk to me afterwards and we can talk through uh, the conversations you need to have. But that is a strange thing to say about yourself. And so to say that you are the son of God, the son of man, this promised one from the Old Testament, before Abraham was, I am. That's what Jesus said about himself. He gave himself the divine Hebraic name, Yahweh, I am. That's me. He says it in the Garden of Gethsemane and all of the soldiers fall to their feet. They fall to their knees because of this claim. And so he's either a liar, knowing that he's just out to dupe people, he's actually crazy, he believes it, or he is who he says he is. And friends, if this resurrection is true and that tomb is empty, then we are dealing with God, the true God, the one who has the keys over death, hell, and sin in his hand. And this is who we come before And so one of the things that's dangerous, I think, growing up in particularly the South or growing up in the church is we can get so accustomed to Jesus, we can sometimes forget who we're dealing with. Friends, we need to step back and see the one whom we approach. He's not just this picture of Jesus being my homeboy. He is God. He's the one who has conquered the grave. And so if you're here and you wrestle with whether or not Christianity is true, and you're not sure, you have doubts, you have questions, this morning as you come and you hear, understand who it is that you're walking and you're talking with. This Jesus is in fact God, and he offers you something that no one else can offer. As he says, here was my mission, to come and to live a life that you could never live. That God is holy and you are not. And there is now a separation between you and him. But I have come to live the life that you were called to live but never could. A life of perfect obedience. But not only that, then he goes and he walks into the Garden of Gethsemane. The next day he picks up a cross and he walks to Calvary. And he dies in your place. And it's interesting in that moment as the Bible describes that death. Even as John describes. Go read John 19. You'll hardly find any details about the way in which Jesus died. It says uh, in one of the verses, it says, and he crucified him. And that's it. Why? Because the emphasis of the crucifixion isn't on the pain or the physical suffering of Jesus. It's on spiritually what happened in that moment. And what happened in that moment is for all those who trust and embrace and follow Jesus. Jesus comes forward and he says, give me your sin. All of your shortcomings and all of your failings, I will take them in your place. And all of the wrath and the punishment that was meant for you from a good and righteous and holy judge, I will take it in your place. And I will die the death that you deserved. And if you believe in me, then I'll give you my perfect obedience. I will give you my perfect life. So that whenever 
you then go forward when the Father looks at you. He doesn't see you for all of your shortcomings. He doesn't see you for your screw-ups or your hang-ups. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son. He sees his own child now being adopted into the family of God. That this is what Jesus offers today. And you can come and you can trust and you can believe and that life could be yours today. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You just trust. That's what grace is. Christianity is not about giving wages. It's about giving grace. If you had to earn it, then it would have been your paycheck, but it's not. And so as we come today and we see if this is in fact true, we are dealing with the true God. We have to reckon with that. But also if this is true, then we are dealing with true hope. We're dealing with true hope. Hope both that the payment that Jesus paid on the cross was accepted by the Father. The check that he cashed didn't bounce. If you're under 30, I'll explain what that reference is after the service. (laughs) That payment was accepted by the Father. But also we have hope that his victory will one day be ours. Hope that as he conquered the grave and he conquered death and he conquered sin, that his victory will one day be given to us. Right, you ever heard the story of David and Goliath? The story of the nation of Israel battling against the Philistines and the Philistines had this big giant Goliath sent forward and he's rumbling and saying, no one can beat me. And the Jew, every, every Israelite's shaking, worried. No one goes out to fight. David, the small little shepherd boy, comes forward. He's like, hey, I've got God on my side. I'll go fight him. He walks forward. He picks up some stones, runs to the battle line, faces Goliath, and he kills him. And listen, it was common in uh, that time period, this, this uh, military strategy or tactic or ethic of war in which two nations would send out their greatest warrior. Have you ever seen the movie Troy with Bad Pitt? This happens too in the scene. They send out their greatest warrior, and they fight. And whoever wins, that victory is then counted for the entire nation. So when David slays Goliath, his victory over their greatest enemy is counted to everyone that's an Israelite, even though they were shaking and afraid and didn't lift a finger. And friends, we have the hope of this resurrection that that is our story as well. That as Jesus goes forward and he faces our greatest enemy, he faces death and sin and the gates of hell and he overcomes. And on the resurrection, he triumphs and he rises from the dead that his victory will one day be given to us as well as we stand not lifting a finger. We didn't do anything to add to it, but by believing in him, his victory is given to us. That's why we sing songs that say things like come behold the wondrous mystery slain by death the God of life but no grave could ever restrain him praise the Lord he is alive what a foretaste of deliverance how unwavering our hope Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes Christ's resurrection gives us hope that that will one day happen to us as well, that his victory is ours, that it is guaranteed, that it is certain, that we don't have to worry when we come before our enemy anymore. But Jesus has conquered it, and we then fall in line behind him. And it is that picture of Jesus that will give you hope. Friends, listen to me. It is that picture of Jesus that will give you hope. At this church, I refuse to give you a picture of gentle Jesus, meek and mild only. A picture of Jesus that tugs at your heartstrings. 
as he walks softly down the streets of Jerusalem with his baby blue eyes and his well-manicured beard glistening in the Middle Eastern sun and his hair flowing down past his shoulders, perfectly parted down the middle. Listen, first of all, Jesus was Middle Eastern, so he didn't have blue eyes and he wasn't white. But that's an entirely different story. These pictures of Jesus where he's surrounded by chubby little angel babies with hearts, harps and bluebirds. Listen, all you have to do is go through any kind of pain in your life and that image of Jesus will not hold up. It seems nice right now and you can go and turn on the radio and slap a smile on your face, but you go through any kind of tragedy and that Jesus does not give you any hope. He cannot bring you that in the midst of brokenness. Be honest with yourselves. When you experience the acute brokenness of the world, we want something more than some cute, sweet image of Jesus. When you stand there beside a loved one as they take their last breath, or you hear those words from a doctor that you thought you would never have directed at you, or you find yourself falling again into the same sin that you swore you would never give into again, or maybe you're just stuck in a pit of apathy and you have no idea how to be able to get out of it. In those moments when your soul feels like it's been ripped open and salt is being poured in by a dump truck, it's then you don't want a thin, pale, limp-wristed, hippie Jesus that only relates to lambs and birds and babies. You want a warrior Jesus one that can give you hope, one that's gone toe-to-toe with your greatest enemy and defeated it. Listen, this is the image that we see in John earlier in John 10, the final of Jesus' public signs about six months before he's crucified as he goes to the tomb of one of his friends, Lazarus. His friend had died. He'd been dead for four days. Jesus approaches the tomb, and whenever he finally gets there, he gets past Mary, he gives Mary a hug. He gets past Martha, he gives Martha a theological reason for the hope that she can have, and she, he comforts his friends. But when he gets past them, he gets to the tomb. And when he gets to the tomb, do you know what John says? As he stands there in front of death, it says that Jesus was deeply moved. Now, it's hard for us, and this is one of the times where it's difficult in the English, because I think when we read that, we probably just read that to go, oh, he just got emotional. He must have just got done watching The Notebook or whatever latest Nicholas Sparks movie just came out. He was deeply moved. But the word in the original language that was written in, that John writes it in, in the Greek, it's one that gives this image of a, a horse going to battle and snorting before it runs in. That he wasn't just emotional, he was angry. And why was he angry? Because he stood toe-to-toe with man's enemy, with his beloved's enemy. And he knew the battle that he was about to fight. He was getting ready to run into the war. And he was deeply moved. He was angry. He was ready to run into battle because it was why he had come, to free his beloved from the grips of death and sin and hell. You want a robust gospel in that moment that can withstand the greatest pains of your life. You want a rigorous hope in this resurrection that allows you to look at death dead in the face and say, you do not have the last word in my life. 
When you're in a dark place and you feel like you can't shake the grip of sin or hopelessness or despair off your soul, it's then you want the strong arm and unshakable grip of God that will not let you go no matter what. He will hold you fast so that when that enemy comes at last, when death comes at last to knock on your door, then you can open it without hesitation and you can say, along with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ and finally to die is gain. Do you know why Paul was able to stare death in the face and say, hey, it's actually to my advantage if I die? That's a good thing. Paul's untouchable hope came from his belief in the resurrection and the hope that he had, knowing that death did not have the final word in his life. He knew that death couldn't touch him because Jesus had him. And friends, if you have trusted Christ, then the same hope is offered to you today. That no matter what, listen to me, and I mean this, no matter what this world throws at you, it cannot touch you because Jesus has you. Now, it will hurt, and we will feel the brokenness of this world. But what it does is it pushes us further and further into the one who's defeated it. As we lean on him, we see that he will not fail us. Charles Spurgeon, an old Baptist minister, has said, I've learned to kiss the wave that crashes me against the rock of ages. That whenever we begin to understand the hope of the resurrection, it changes the way that we view suffering in our lives. Did the resurrection matter to Paul? It shaped his entire life. He knew that the victory of Christ would one day be his as well. And we see this throughout church history as well including one of my favorite Christians alive today, Johnny Erickson Tata. I don't know, you may or may not have heard of her. Uh, her book, uh, When God Weeps, is one of the most meaningful books I've ever read on suffering. It's outstanding. Johnny, when she was 17 years old, um, she was a great athlete. She was a diver. She was a swimmer. She dove into the Chesapeake Bay, and she misread how shallow it was. When she dove in, she fractured her spine between her fourth and fifth vertebrae. She became a quadriplegic. Um, she became paralyzed from the shoulders down. She then spent the rest of her life in a wheelchair, having to be taken care of. But that didn't stop her. She became a painter. You go, wait, didn't you just say paralyzed from the shoulders down? Yeah, she paints with her mouth. She's a remarkable singer. She's such a sweet spirit and has so much hope. But as if that wasn't enough, a few years ago she was diagnosed with breast cancer as well. And more recently she's been diagnosed with chronic pain. I heard her at a conference a couple weeks ago here in Orlando, and she said that her chronic pain now makes quadriplegia look like a walk in the park. She has felt acutely the brokenness and suffering of this world. But listen to what she says about everything that she's experienced in her life. She said, I sure hope that I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope I can bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new, perfect, and glorified body, Standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. I'll say, thank you, Jesus, for giving me that. And he'll know that I mean it, because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble, because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, then the harder I leaned on you. And the harder that I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. 
Then the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin and all of earth will join in the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we ever experienced on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, then finally the Lord Jesus really will wipe away our tears. I find it so poignant that finally at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God will do it for me. Friends, the hope of the cross is found when Jesus cried out, it is finished. All of our sin was finished. All of our shame was finished. All of the wrath of God meant for us was finished. He drank the cup down to the dregs. But the presence and the effects of sin still remain with us. We still feel pain. We still hear words from a doctor's mouth like cancer and heart attack and disease. We still have to buy a black suit to go to a funeral. And we still have to have something to wipe away our tears with. But friends, the hope of the resurrection is found when Jesus returns in glory that he will then once again cry out, it is finished. And in that moment, or as Paul writes in the twinkling of an eye, all of our pain will be finished. All of our cancer and heart attacks and diseases will be finished. All of our death will be finished. All of our tears will be finished forever. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, there has never been another like him. Like all the other holy men, you can go and visit Jesus' graves, but when you get there, you'll find that he's not. You'll find it just like Mary, Peter, and John did. It's going to be empty. And as you stand before the empty tomb today, you're faced with two questions that you have to answer. Did it happen? And does it matter? Christ has died. And Christ is risen. And friends, Christ will come again. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you so much for the hope that you've given us. God, the hope of this resurrection. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to be able to be convinced of this truth, that you, in fact, did live. You did, in fact, die. And you did, in fact, rise again. But we wouldn't stop there. That that truth would find its way into our hearts and it would give us an unshakable hope that this world cannot touch that we see the victory that you have over the grave, the victory that you have over sin is given to us as well. And that is a hope that nothing in this world can take away. It's true hope. And we love you and help us be able to see you as you really are, the risen king, our warrior savior, the lion and the lamb, the one who was slain for us and with a breath was risen and put death to death. We love you and we thank you so much for your son. It's in his name I pray. Amen.